0: This is Exchanges at Goldman Sachs, where we discuss developments currently shaping markets, industries, and the global economy. I'm Jake Seward, Global Head of Corporate Communications here at the firm. February of 2018 broke a long stretch of low volatility in both equity and bond markets, and the volatility has continued here into early March. What's behind that new volatility, and how is monetary policy reacting? To discuss these topics and more, we're joined by Francesco Garzarelli, who's based in London and serves as co-chief markets economist of the Global Macro Research Team. Francesco, welcome to the program.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: So let's start with the state of play here in early March. Stocks and bonds have been on a bit of a bumpy ride over the past month or so. What's
1: driving this new volatility? Well, I think ultimately it seems to be a reappraisal of the growth outlook that came about primarily with the fiscal impulse here in the United States. And alongside that, investors are generally more uncertain as to how the Fed will respond to to heighten growth, and also uh, where the so-called terminal rate, so where's the peak of policy rates going to be in this cycle. So that's an open discussion going on in the market. And that's, uh, I think, the source of a bit more volatility than we've seen uh, in past few years.
0: So the bond market's been in bull phase forever, as long as we can remember almost. People are starting to say, well, maybe we're entering a new uh, sort of bearish bond market. What are your thoughts on that?
1: We have actually a good report out asking exactly that question. And I think in order to have a bond bear market, you have to have more than just the central bank of the United States hiking rates. You'll have to have something that looks more like a normal interest rate cycle where you have synchronized moves by the likes of the ECB and the BOJ the Bank of England etc and we don't have that yet in our forecast that happens only at the earliest at the beginning of uh, at the end of sorry of this year or the beginning of 2019 so for now we are repricing the fed mostly that's what we're doing in bond markets so you see some divergence in central
0: banks a bit but risky assets have taken the bond market sell off in
1: stride what do you think about that when we started experiencing the sell off in september people got quite apprehensive as to what this would have done to stocks for instance or credit and you know we had some little volatility episodes around january but by and large uh, as you put it uh, they've they've held in quite well and i think that is because bond markets are ultimately not pricing inflation risk. Let me unpack that in a second. What we have analyzed bond markets to have done is basically reprice the trajectory of Fed funds rates and build a little bit more uncertainty around that trajectory. So the real interest curve, the TIPS curve, if you want to look at the US market, has gone up and steepened. But at the same time, the inflation curve has not moved. It has moved higher a bit. Uh, that reflects the weakening of the dollar and the increase in oil prices, but it has not built in an inflation premium. So bonds are saying, yes, there's going to be growth. The Fed will respond to it, but ultimately they'll be able to keep inflation at 2%. And that's not a very bad thing for stocks. So uh, the bond market is not going to pull... Uh, the rug frond or risky assets. That's the assessment of the market, at least.
0: Coming out of the Great Recession of 2007 to 2009, the Fed lowered interest rates to almost zero, and we've been in a low-rate environment ever since. How is that playing out into what we're seeing now, and how is the backdrop of zero interest rate policy
1: being reflected in today's markets? Okay. This is where it gets, I think, very interesting in the in the fixed income markets. Uh, so, we have to go back a little bit in time and think about uh, how central bank mandates have been built over the years. Central banks uh, from China to Japan, all the way through Europe and the United States uh, have the mandate to keep inflation at 2%. We had the great crises 10 years ago. That created a lot of spare capacity and low demand so inflation had troubles in going back to 2%. Then we had the oil price shock in 2014 and that knocked a big chunk of inflation off times here. So if you if you think about how central banks have responded particularly from 2014 onwards they had to do crazy things just to get inflation back up. And among these crazy things is putting cash rates to negative or engaging in large scale purchases of long-term bonds. And these effects, given that we live in a globalized market for investors, have spilled over. So something happens in BOJ policy or ECB policy, and next thing you know, the treasury curve has moved without any intervening change in expectations in the United States. Now, to your question, why is the yield curve uh, so flat? uh, I think that has to do, to a large extent, to central bank uh, interventions in the bond market directly.
0: So after this long period of quantitative easing or QE, the Fed's now tightening, quantitative mm-hmm. tightening, and obviously hiking interest rates, depending on who you believe, three or four times this year. Why is that happening?
1: Well, I think the macro is changing. For one, uh, we are uh, uh, now experiencing stronger growth in the United States. Uh, as I said earlier, we had the fiscal stimulus uh, leading uh, analysts to revise upwards their growth uh, Uh, picture for this year and next. The other ingredient uh, that has been missing, uh, but but it's now part of the the expectation set is that there are more countries that are growing at the same time. So global growth uh, has gone from strength to strength. So some of that spare capacity is either gone or being eroded quite quickly. And the presumption is that you will have inflation going forward, either wage inflation or consumer price inflation. The long wave of commodity deflation seems to be behind us as well. Finally, the Fed has dual mandate. So unlike the ECB or the VOJ that need control only CPI, the Fed has also to keep an eye on the unemployment rate. And that unemployment rate has gone to levels that in past cycles were associated with full employment, leading to expectations that wages will eventually pick up. So that's why they're hiking and they're doing quantitative tightening. Right. So.
0: At this point, do you think the Fed's more concerned about the risks of high inflation or
1: uh, if they move beyond deflation? It's a delicate matter because uh, if you were to read the, what the bond market says uh, and you're sitting at the Fed, you would say, "G.M. hiking rates. Inflation is still below my target. It's going up, but it's going up from below where I want it to be. I've undershot the target for a number of years. And the bond market is telling me that there won't be a lot of inflation going forward, that I'll be successful uh, on the projection of uh, the policy path evolution, that inflation will stay stable. And so, I don't know, they will be looking at this uh, perhaps with the recognition that they need to be careful uh, in the way they they maneuver interest rates, uh, not to create uh, expectations of uh, having done too much. Now, we happen as an economics group, as a forecasting unit, to think that there will be more inflation. So the Fed will be wrong in reading what the bond market is saying because the market sometimes gets it wrong. And uh, if we do see inflation, uh, the picture will change. Well, because of that view that you just outlined last
0: year, Goldman Sachs research basically predicted that we'd see four rate hikes this year from the Fed. Does that remain on track even with the recent sort of spike in volatility, or could they slow down the pace as the markets sort of anticipate right now?
1: So we are now the first time in many years where where the Fed projects through these median dots, as the, mm-hmm. the market calls them, policy rates to be this year next. We are at the closest level in terms of market expectations to these dots, If you see everything here at the Fed and, you know, the economy is doing okay and risky assets are doing okay, diverging from that trajectory wouldn't seem appropriate. So, going back to this on-the-bus, off-the-bus regime that we've had in uh, previous years, unless, obviously, we're hit by an unforeseen shock. So, I think, you know, the the path for policy rates, uh, and there could be a little bit more or less, uh, is pretty much uh, in check. The quantitative tightening is, however much more difficult to analyze. This is for a number of reasons. Firstly, we never had QE, and surely we never had QT, the reverse of that. So we cannot really calibrate what happens. And the knock-on impacts. Surely the knock-on impacts. That we can calibrate, that we know, spill over very quickly across economies. So they're starting to do this uh, with parameters that are shaky, surely shakier than the ones they have for the front end. Uh, They're doing it in a very gingerly way, trying to maneuver expectations well. But obviously, what they're doing could interplay with things they can't control. For instance, bigger treasury supply or a pickup in inflation. So put these three things I've said together. Treasury issuance is going to increase, there is more inflation, and the Fed is buying less bonds. That won't go down well with bond investors, and it could change really quickly. Talk about how the Fed's reacting to
0: that big fiscal stimulus from the tax cuts. I mean, for years, a lot of economists were saying, hey, it's time for fiscal policy to take a turn. All of a sudden, fiscal policy is at the forefront.
1: How's the Fed thinking about that shift in roles? Well, economists did say that. Uh, They said it for the U.S., for Europe, but they said it when private demand was much weaker than it is today. The argument there was let's use public sector demand, uh, let's borrow from the future, and then when private demand is back on track, we'll pay down the debt. Now, the fiscal expansion happens to be taking place uh, when private demand seems pretty firm. We have full employment. And by the way, uh, also in other countries, we see deficit spend uh, increase. Europe, particularly now with the political climate changing so much, Japan, so the fiscal stimulus globally is increasing. And how do the Fed respond to it? I think they have told us already that uh, they're prepared to continue in this tightening cycle, and you know they're modulated as we go along. So you talked about terminal rates. Where does the market today see the Fed
0: ending up in the tightening cycle, and is that view evolving?
1: So there has been an increase in terminal rates, and as a Was pointing out earlier, there's also been an increase in the uncertainty around uh, terminal rates. The nominal terminal rate is in the range of around 3%. The split is currently about 1% real and 2% inflation. So that's uh, where I come out saying the market really doesn't allow itself a lot of cushioning for the possibility that inflation over the medium term outpaces the, the 2% inflation target of the Fed. Right.
0: You and your team have done a lot of work on so-called term premium. Explain what that is to the uninitiated and um, and why it's increasing.
1: It feels a bit like a catch-all phrase. Premium tends to be kind of a dump, the things you can't explain. And uh, in a way, the bond premium is just that. Uh, it's the excess compensation that we estimate, either through surveys of expectations or through analytical techniques that investors require for bearing duration risk, for departing from their money for a longer period of time. So, how does this generally work? Normally, the term premium is positive on average. Um, It has some time uh, cyclical properties. So, When things are bad, you generally want to hold on to your money, so you you demand a higher premium and vice versa. You could think about about it as the yield curve. It's steep when uh, we have a recession, so there's a lot of bond premium, and vice versa. We're in a boom. uh, The curve is flat. Mm -hmm. But it also interplays positively with uncertainty, and particularly inflation uncertainty. So if uh, there is inflation, generally there's more inflation uncertainty, and that's where the premium starts picking up and the curve goes up. Where are we today? When we condition our estimates of term premium for the current set of macro expectations around growth, inflation, and the uncertainty over these two factors, we find that the term premium or the slope of the curve in the US in particular is too low. The curve is too flat. We think that this is because foreign central banks have depressed their yields so much to attract uh, foreign buyers into U.S. fixed income in search for yield. And this has generated an abnormality relative to historical norms in the pricing of the long end of the yield curve.
0: So why is the term premium in other markets going up despite very different central bank policy?
1: Part of this is a reflection of what happens in the United States. So we have... Again, this discussion on terminal rates, we have more inflation, so more uncertainty creeping in that builds premium in the U.S., uh, which in turn then spills over into Europe and Japan to the extent we can see, because as you know, Japan pegs the entire yield curve out to 10 years, so it's hard to read what really expectations are there. But part of it comes from the U.S. and lands in Europe. Another chunk originates in Europe uh, where people now have understood that the ECB is about to end large-scale purchases of, uh, of bonds. So their, their version of QE. Their version of QE is, yep. a, on our expectation, going to end in the fourth quarter of this year. But So the subsidy that they've been paying to bondholders for going out on the yield curve is uh, gradually coming to an end. How are
0: investors reacting to that in terms of how they allocate capital given the divergence in monetary policy?
1: I think it goes back to what I was saying earlier. If you look at the lay of the land today in fixed income, uh, investors are quite convinced that the Fed will continue to hike. So there's a lot of short positions at the front end of the yield curve. My argument is that these positions are essentially taking – risk that growth will continue to be strong, okay? So that's what investors are doing. But otherwise, in this uh, expectation set we have where people don't expect a lot of inflation, not even in the United States, but let alone in Japan or Europe, uh, investors are otherwise chasing premium. So if the premium comes up in the European curves because the ECB does less bond buying, guess what? People are divesting from U.S. fixed income where the yield curve is flat, and fleeing back to Europe, where your curve is steep. And that, by the way, is driving the euro-dollar exchange rate. So, Francesco, we we talked a
0: little bit about this, but your team put out a report on how the U.S. bond market's pricing in these various factors. You note that U.S. treasuries are priced for stronger GDP growth, higher real rates, and more uncertainty. But investors don't really expect inflation to rise above the Fed target. Talk us through these dynamics.
1: Are crucial. Um, I think uh, you know if, if we are, as macroeconomists are wrong and growth does disappoint uh, for any reason, uh, there is a, there's an adverse uh, shock, uh, geopolitical or we you know miscalibrating growth in uh, in China and we have spillover effects on the growth side in, in the US. I think, uh, you know, quite naturally, you'll see a lot of investors who are now short the front end of the treasury curve uh, take profit, uh, and that will lead to a re-steepening of the yield curve here from the front end. Mm -hmm. Uh, That could give a lift to um, risk assets, provided the shock is small enough. Vice versa, if we have, uh, as in our central expectation, a bit more inflation, in the coming quarters, I think that could challenge the bond market more because investors in fixed income are quite convinced that the long end of the yield curve will remain stable and that rate volatility won't pick up. Now, if those conditions are not met, and we do have a steepening of the yield curve and more vol, that, in my opinion, will challenge also correlations between fixed income and risky assets. So you could have bonds selling off because an of inflation shock, materializing, and risky assets then becoming stressed.
0: Given all that, what does that mean for market volatility through the rest of the year, 2018? Should we expect to continue to see big fluctuations in, in stocks and bonds, or Do you think that was just a short-term correction to account for sort of the
1: new reality uh, post-tax cut? So where we are on this as a group is we're happy to take growth risk. We think there's enough growth around the world. We'll need to look out for it, uh, obviously, and rotate our investments, but we're prepared to think that growth is resilient enough uh, to stay invested in risky assets. But uh, we also think that the market is unprepared for inflation uncertainty I'll give you one statistic last time we had break evens at the five year horizon Bre- break evens are uh, the expectation of inflation over the next five years take, mm-hmm. take that number at 2% where they're now the market was assigning about 30% the odds that inflation would be at or above 3% over that same horizon five years currently the market assigns only 10% probability so it doesn't see the upside uh, of inflation risk. Now, if that is the environment we're instead moving into, where that 10% becomes again 30%, we will have more volatility. So more drawdowns, uh, particularly in risky assets, um, and that's that's something that uh, we we think uh, can be used uh, to make money. Uh, that's an investment. That's an investable proposition. Drawdown risk, uh, uh, higher vol, uh, steeper yield curve, where the market, market actually pays you uh, to take uh, risk in that direction. So that's that's the that's the disconnect that we want to exploit this year. And adding to this, uh, there is a shift in regime uh, by central banks. We talked about QT in, uh, in here in the U.S., but there's also less QE in other markets. And so the subsidy to the long end of the curve will uh, will diminish over time. Yeah. So the Italian elections just happened, uh,
0: sure. Sunday. Um, but although the outcome is uh, still a little cloudy, don't see the new coalition quite yet. Um, but obviously, rise of nationalist parties, um, which we'd seen in other countries, um, was was strongly evident uh, in, in the results. How do you see that playing out? And how do you, how do you see political risk at this moment
1: just playing out across Europe? It's a great question. Look, I th- I would make uh, the following observations. Um, it plays out different in different countries, but the, at the origin, we have the same problems. There is economic disparity in Italy. It's between the north and the south, in other regions between east and west, but it's the same problem that we, we have to grapple with. You have it here in the United Middle States. Middle and coast. Yeah, exactly. Right. And then we have migration. And, uh, you know, Italy has been one of the countries most affected because uh, the wave of migrants coming from uh, it's just geography. Yeah. It's just, it's just geography, right? If you're in Greece or Italy, uh, then you get the first wave. So those are the two issues that uh, the population are responding to. Then how the political offering is shaped and how the electoral system looks like dictates what kind of outcome you have. So in Italy, for instance, historically, you don't have a strong liberal liberal right, like you don't have a Republican party. Uh, And so that space has been occupied by forces that have basically come up uh, in the past cycle and have different names, but essentially they're responding to those uh, demands from the population. in France, you had the, exactly the same, but you had the second round, uh, then then cleared the uh, kind of the, well, the space. more of a
0: winner-take-all system.
1: Winner-take-all, yeah, exactly. And the moderates eventually managed to make their case strong enough, and and they had uh, the, you know the Macron uh, phenomenon. In Italy, we have only one round, and the parliament then will have to decide. Uh, through a set of coalitions, who to uh, to appoint as uh, as, the, as the government, and have markets reacted in any significant way? Markets were a bit prepared for a stalemate or a hung parliament, so uh, Italian assets had already embedded some premium. We came out with the view that there wasn't going to be you know a sharp sell-off uh, on the back of the of the elections, precisely because uh, some premium had been built. Um, but we don't, uh, we don't think that the premium will erode because it will take time to settle the situation and see what, uh, what Italians, uh, the Italian MPs will be able to, um, to negotiate. Um, we don't see spillovers to other countries. And that is because uh, growth is strong. We have monetary accommodation. And generally speaking, uh, things are going better, for instance, in uh, Spain and Portugal to justify where, where markets are trading.
0: So, Francesco, it wasn't long ago that investors were looking at Portugal, Italy, Greece, Spain, and the bonds were trading very, very narrowly together and highly correlated. Is that era over now? Or are investors being
1: more discriminating? I think when we go measure the amount of systematic risk, um, EMU breakup risk, the way of are calling it, that was embedded in European assets uh, around 2011, 2012 it was huge. Okay, it was, and high degrees of correlation and high degrees of correlation, and all of that is gone. Our measures of systemic risk were trading below the average level of risk we had in the first decade of EMU. People are quite relaxed that uh, the euro area will stick together. Now, whether that's right or wrong, I'll let uh, time will tell. Yeah.
0: All right, Francesco, thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure.
1: Thank you for having me here.
0: That concludes this episode of Exchanges Goldman Sachs. Thanks for listening, and we hope you join us again next time.
2: This podcast was recorded on March 6th, 2018. All price references and market forecasts correspond to the date of this recording.